For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. The Last Supper. Foreshadowing. This is something that great authors use. This is where you've got, as a book or a movie is unfolding, you have hints and clues that are dropped early on in the story. And then later, as the story unfolds and surprises are revealed, you start to see what looked like an innocent interaction, an innocent statement early on in the book or in the movie. All of a sudden, you realize how it was pregnant with meaning. For example... Empire Strikes Back. You remember this scene where Luke is fighting this vision of Darth Vader in the cave? And then he, uh, at the end of the battle, it ends up, the, the helmet pops off and Luke's face shows through. Well, then you realize at the end of that movie that ha- that had more significance because Darth Vader is really Luke's father. Can you believe it? <laughs> Hope that's not a spoiler. <laughs> or the movie Fight Club. You remember this scene here? <laughs> When the narrator, the nameless narrator, you realize he doesn't even have a name in this movie, Ed Norton's character, beats himself up in his boss's office and then um, <clears throat> he gets to the end of beating himself up and he says, for some reason I thought of my first fight with Tyler. <laughs> well, you get to the end of the movie and you realize they're the same guy, right? <laughs> so, foreshadowing. Foreshadow- I hope that wasn't a spoiler either. <laughs> What we see tonight is some of the greatest foreshadowing in the history of the human race, only in this case it's not fiction. It's the story of human history, worked in by the author of Salvation, where he has these symbols, has this event 1,500 years before the time of Christ, that when Jesus comes, he reveals the deeper theological significance. We left off last week at the end of Luke 21, Luke 22, verse 1 says, the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching, a festival that's played a very important role already in this final week of the life of Christ. Well, verses 1 through 6, we'll actually come back to these next week, but this is where Judas goes to the chief priests and cuts a deal to turn Jesus over to them for 30 pieces of silver. And so it says in verse 6, he had to watch for a time when he could hand Jesus over to them without the crowd seeing. He had to find a time when Jesus was alone so the the religious leaders could arrest Jesus. Well, it says in verse 7, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. This was Thursday night and on into Friday of that week. Yes, Passover was actually on Friday of that week, which started on Thursday night. But what they would do is, because of the, um, the, the influx of pilgrims into Jerusalem for the Passover, They were just overwhelmed with requests for lambs at the temple. And so uh, Josephus tells of one Passover where 2.7 million people showed up, according to his estimates. And so what they would do is the the Jewish pilgrims that were from the north part of Israel, the Galilee area, they would celebrate Passover Thursday night after sundown, because that's when their days started. The Jews from the southern part of Israel, they would celebrate Passover on Friday afternoon. So Jesus and his guys... They were from Galilee. They would celebrate this on Thursday evening after sundown. And so Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Yes, Luke tells us who these two guys were. Two of his most trusted guys, Peter and John. Notice he doesn't send Judas. Even though Judas is the keeper of the money, he would have been a logical choice. But Jesus knew what Judas was doing the whole time. So he sends Peter and John. He says, go and make preparations for us. Well, Peter and John... 
They're supposed to go into the city of Jerusalem. These guys are from Galilee. They don't know where to find a place. They, they don't know the city that well. Secondly, it's like the busiest day of the year. This is like Jesus showing up on the morning of Valentine's Day and saying, go get me a reservation at the nicest restaurant in town. It's too late by then. All the reservations have been made for weeks or months in advance. And so Peter and John, they're like, where do we go? We're not from around here and the place is packed. So Jesus tells them, he gives kind of a mysterious answer. As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters. So back before the days of Airbnb, <laughs> this is how you got a room. <laughs> Find the guy with the water pitcher. And then say to the owner of that house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? So I don't know if Jesus had arranged for this in advance or if there was some sort of divine intervention going on here. But he sends them in and there's, there's apparently these, these guys who are supposed to meet him and these signals that he's given to the people who are going to host this Passover. And so it says, he'll show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, make preparations there. This was actually quite common in the time of Christ. People who were living in Jerusalem who had extra rooms, they would rent them out to pilgrims who were in time for, town for the Passover. He had to celebrate it inside the city walls. The, and in fact, the guy who was, owned the house who was letting you use his room, his payment, he would take the skin of the lamb and all the vessels that you used, all the plates and cups you used for your meal. So that was his payment. So this was common. And it says they left and found things just as Jesus had told them, and so they prepared the Passover. So at this point, now that Peter and John finally know the location it looks like Jesus was keeping this secret. I, I'm imagining the secrecy here is because he doesn't want Judas to know the address of, the, of where they're going to take this Last Supper. Judas is looking for a place where Jesus is alone with his disciples, so he's got to keep it somewhat hidden until they show up at the location. So Peter and John, they know the location. Now they, know, they would have known exactly what to do to prepare the Passover meal. They would have had several errands to run that afternoon. They would have had to go to the temple and pick up a lamb that was slain at the, on the temple precincts, according to the right ceremonial specifications. They had to get some bitter herbs for this meal. They had to pick up unleavened bread, and they also needed to get some wine, all as part of this Passover meal celebration. So they would have been busy running around and picking up these items in preparation for the meal that evening. They would have known exactly what Passover was. They'd been celebrating it their whole lives. Unfortunately, a lot of us don't know anything about Passover. Or what we do, we know very little. And so what we're going to have to do in order to understand the, the depth of the symbolism behind this Last Supper, we're going to need to go back about 1,478 years to the first Passover celebration. The first time that they celebrated this meal and what was behind it. And this is found in the book of Exodus chapters 11 and 12. This is 1446 B.C. The Israelites are slaves in Egypt. They've been in Egypt for 430 years and a fair number of years toward the end of that time, they were slaves. They were treated very cruelly by the Egyptians to the extent where they, the, the Israelites kept multiplying and Pharaoh even issued an edict to kill all the baby boys that were born to the Jews in an attempt to exterminate the race and make the women intermarry with the Egyptians. 
Well, God sent a man named Moses. And Moses had a message for Pharaoh. He said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no. And so what ensues is a power struggle where God is sending plague after plague on Egypt to try to get, uh, among other things, to try to get Pharaoh to relent. God has sent nine plagues so far at this point in the story. This is the famous final tenth plague. Why was God sending all these plagues? Well, one reason is he's showing his superiority to all the so-called gods of Egypt. And he's giving a witness to anyone who's willing to listen. This is a, a chance for the Egyptians to see, wait a minute, that's the one true God. I need to follow him. And in fact, many Egyptians were, it says, are going to switch loyalties as a result of this contest between Pharaoh and God. And at this point, Pharaoh says no for the final time. And so Yahweh said to Moses, I will strike Pharaoh in the land of Egypt with one more blow. This is going to be the final one. God knows Pharaoh will relent after this. After that, Pharaoh will let you leave his country. This is what Yahweh says, Moses told Pharaoh. About midnight, I will pass through the heart of Egypt, and all the firstborn will die in every family in Egypt. Whoa. That's a little hard to take for modern ears. A few things we need to consider with this threat of judgment that God is bringing upon Egypt. Why every family? Well, for one, Pharaoh was not the only guilty one in this situation any more than Hitler was the only guilty one in Nazi Germany. Many of the Egyptians profited financially from the slavery they put the Jews through, and they also killed Many of them would have killed babies, thrown them into the river to drown them. So Pharaoh was not the only guilty one in this case. Also, the Egyptians could have switched sides at any time. Many had switched sides. We also see God is going to give them a way out. In fact, this threat applies to the Israelites as well as the Egyptians. But there's, there's a way out. Anyone who follows God's instructions will receive salvation from this judgment of death that is coming upon the whole land. Finally, we need to remember that God would one day give his own son as a payment for all of our sins. And so there's a, a foreshadowing, a typology in all of this. It says in chapter 12, while the Israelites were still in the land of Egypt, Yahweh gave the following instructions to Moses and Aaron. And so these are the instructions for how do you get out of this death sentence that's coming to every home. And as we read the, the instructions... The focal point of these instructions is what's called the Passover lamb. God says this little lamb is so important. Once you encounter this lamb, your life is never going to be the same again. Here's a famous painting of this Passover lamb. <clears throat> There's a lot of implications, though, for Christianity. As 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For Christ, our Passover lamb has, lamb has been sacrificed. And so it's not just a message and, and a sacrifice for them in the 1400s BC, but it's a picture of what Christ would one day do. And we'll point out some of those parallels, those predictive parallels for this picture of this lamb as we go through this instructions. Moses writes, this month when this lamb would be sacrificed shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. And so it's very explicit. This is a new beginning. This is where everything starts. Some of us in this room are probably thinking to ourselves, 
man, I've done so many things wrong. I've messed things up so bad. If only I could get a fresh start. If only I could get a new beginning. And that's exactly what the Passover lamb offers. Offers a new beginning, not just to the people of Israel, but also to people here today. He says, announce to the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each family must choose a young lamb or young goat for a sacrifice. The animal you select must be a one-year-old male without a sheep, either a sheep or a goat with no defects. Yeah, pretty much all the lambs were born around this time of year. This is like March, April. And so they all would have been born this time of year. So pretty much all of last year's, I guess, nursery or whatever, would be turning one about this time. This is why the lambs never had birthday parties. Because everybody had the same birthday, basically. So it's kind of lame. <clears throat> Plus, the best lamb would die. So. Uh, good thing they don't have feelings. So, okay. <clears throat> no defects, it says. This is not like pick the lamb that like, only has three legs and kind of walks in circles. It's always getting sick. No. You've got to pick the most perfect lamb that you've got. No defects. This one needs to be specially selected for this task. And what Scripture says is that our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, was even more perfect than any lamb could ever be. John tells us, you know, it even says later in Exodus, don't break any of the bones. John, in his account of the crucifixion, explicitly quotes this verse and says Jesus fulfilled this. Not only was he morally perfect in every way, but even when it came down to his hanging on the cross. You know, on the cross, you'd have to push up in order to breathe. And so to speed up the death of the victims, they would break their legs. They couldn't push up. They, most, most crucifixion victims would suffocate. By the time they got to Jesus, he was already dead, though. And so John explicitly cites this verse. That's fulfilled in Christ on the cross. He says, take special care of this chosen animal until the evening of the 14th day of the first month. So there's a four-day observation period, making sure that everything is set, making sure this lamb is good. And then it says, the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight. And so late that afternoon, they're supposed to kill this lamb. The time is pretty interesting. It says it's at twilight. Josephus tells us twilight began around 3 p.m. and lasted till 5 p.m. And Matthew says at about 3 o'clock when Jesus was hanging on the cross, that's when he cried out with a loud voice. That was the moment that the, the wrath of God was poured out on him, and that was the moment of his death. And so at just the time when they were beginning to kill the lambs on Friday afternoon, that was also exactly the time that God the Father was taking the life of our Passover lamb. They're to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides and top of the door frames of the houses where they eat the animal. Well, this is kind of interesting. Kind of gross, actually. You know, it's like you're going to kill this animal, you drain the blood out, and then you take this branch and you smear it on your doorposts and on the top of the door. And so your home is, is, is smeared with blood from this creature that you're about to eat. What was the point of the blood? You see blood coming up in a lot of these Old Testament sacrifices. Well, one thing scriptures tell us, Leviticus 17, 11, for example, is that the blood symbolized the life of the animal and the death of the animal. They knew if the blood wasn't in the body, you're dead. 
And so the fact that the blood was not in there anymore, that was the proof of, that a death had occurred. That was how they showed. And so the blood symbolized life and death to them. And so you knew that the, the lamb was dead, that a death had occurred. That's, you, you couldn't really stick a lamb carcass on your door, but you could smear the blood on the door. Another thing this forced them to do was to take action. You know, up until now, the Israelites could be relatively passive. God was just sending plagues. He would send them on the Egyptians, but not on the Israelites. This was a case, though, where the, each Israelite had to decide for themselves, am I in or am I out? It's also a case where the Egyptians could decide for themselves. Am I in with the God of Israel? Or am I going to continue to stand over here and take my chances with the so-called gods of Egypt? A choice must be made whether you will apply the blood of our Passover lamb to your own life. That same night, they must roast the meat over a fire and eat it along with bitter salad greens and bread made without yeast. Roasted the lamb because that was the quickest, quickest and easiest way to cook it. Bitter salad greens because these were super easy to find. It also, in future years, would be a reminder of how bitter their life was in Egypt. And finally, the bread made without yeast, that was so much faster than waiting for the dough to rise. It would cut the prep time from a couple hours to a couple of minutes for making that bread. Also later, we see that in Scripture that yeast also becomes a symbol for sin. And he says, these are your instructions for eating this meal. Be fully dressed, wear your sandals, and carry your walking stick in your hand. Eat the meal with urgency. So fully dressed, so no naked Passovers. <laughs> Those are completely out of the question, okay? Now, what, what does he really mean there? He's, he's, he's saying this meal needs to be eaten in, in urgency, in haste. He's like, you, need, you know, sandals were not something you wore inside. Your walking stick was not something you would carry around the house. Even your, your, this is, you're fully dressed, you got your pack on there, you got all your hiking gear on, all your travel gear on, you know, it's, this would have been a statement of faith. I mean, imagine, you know, these people, this would have been the people getting their hopes up, believing that something was really going to happen. After 430 years, you know, this would have been about as ridiculous as, as God saying, okay, I want you to put on your skis, get your ski poles, put on your parka, your goggles, and I want you just to stand there even though it's July, and I want you to wait because I'm going to send a snowstorm, and you got to be ready to ski as soon as that snow starts to accumulate. <laughs> so you're just standing there, and you're like, all right, <laughs> any moment now. <laughs> it's like waiting for the great pumpkin, you know. It, how silly would this have looked? You just stand, you just sit there all night long and then nothing happens. What's going to make Pharaoh listen this time after he said no every other time? All they'd gotten was more cruel punishment up to this point in the process. So he says, eat the meal with urgency. On that night, I'll pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. But the blood on your doorposts will serve as a sign, marking the houses where you are staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, which is where we get the term Passover. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. So what is he saying here? He's saying this lamb is your substitute. He's saying that nothing will protect you other than the blood of the lamb. 
no payment that you can make, no status that you can present to God, no amount of good works, nothing, nothing can protect you other than the blood and the blood alone. Peter says this about our Passover lamb as well. He says, you know God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors? Yes, the ransom, the redemption. This is buying a slave out of slavery. And Peter says, you guys were slaves. Just like they were slaves in Egypt, you guys were slaves to sin and death. And God paid a ransom. What was this ransom? It was the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. It was way more valuable than that. No, it was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. He's pulling straight out of Exodus here, Exodus chapter 12. Jesus was perfect, sinless, unblemished, and he was the one. It was his blood that purchased your freedom. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began, but he's now revealing to you in these last days. This was not a reactionary move on God's part. No, he knew this from before the foundation of the world. He knew how humans would turn away from him. He knew the judgment that would bring, the death, the sickness, the brokenness this would bring. Sorry. <laughs> Get those cell phones off. He knew what that would bring. And so, he made, he made a plan to send his son, God the Father, to send God the Son as this substitute to purchase our freedom. What's clear here as well is that nothing can be added to the blood of the Lamb either. Notice what he says. He says, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. What he doesn't say is, when I see the blood and that you're really good, I'll pass over you. No, there's nothing about that. There's nothing about the moral behavior of the people inside that house. He doesn't say, when I see the blood and that you get your life together. You know, maybe you can have a shot at the, at the angel of death passing over your house. That's not what he says either. He doesn't say, when I see the blood and that you really feel close to God, because that's what's important. He doesn't say that either. No, nothing, nothing but the blood the objective fact, blood or no blood, yes or no. Everything in that house rides on whether there's blood on the door, whether the lamb has been slain. D.A. Carson tells this great story, this imaginary account of two men talking to one another on the night of Passover. Two guys, let's say their last names are Smith and Brown, Typically Jewish names, right? <laughs> so Brown says, boy, are you as worried as I am about what's going to go down tonight? Angel of death coming through and all, that's what I hear. And Smith is like, no, I'm not worried. God has told us exactly what to do through his servant Moses. You know, it, killing the lamb, spreading its blood on the doorpost, eating the meal. You've done all that, haven't you? And Brown's like, yeah, I mean, yeah, I did that. I mean, I'm not an idiot. But at the same time, you know, with what's coming down, angel of death coming through, there's been a lot of funny things going on lately. 
Nile turning to blood, that plague of locusts. It just makes me wonder. I mean, I did what God said. I put the blood on the door. But, I, you know, it's easy for you to talk. You got three sons. I've only got one. I love my son. I, I'm just going to be a lot happier when tonight is over with. And the other one says, bring it on. I have the promise of, of God, and I will stand firmly on that. Well, that night, the angel of death sweeps through. Which one of those two guys lost his son? And the answer is, neither one. Because the grounds for their salvation was not how much they believed the promise, not how sincere they were, not how strong their faith was, but the object of their faith. Did you have enough faith to put the blood on the door? That's the question. When the clock strikes 12 and the angel of death comes, he's going to be asking, blood or no blood? And if there's blood, he passes over because the death has already occurred in that household. The ransom has been paid. The substitute has been slain. And there's no need. He can move on to the next house. And so this is the question for you. When you stand before God, what will he find on your door? When the clock strikes 12 for your life, and you stand before God Almighty, what will he find there? Blood or no blood? That is the ground of your salvation, according to the Scriptures. For Christians, then, there's application as well. When you've fallen into sin again, when you're utterly humiliated, disappointed with yourself, beating yourself up because I should be so much further along. I've been a Christian for how many years? And I'm still into this. I'm still struggling with this. I still don't have anything to show for it. I'm as unstable as ever. I'm a failure in every way. When those feelings come, and they will come, where will you take your stand? Will you take your stand on your works and what you've done and your performance? Or will you take your stand upon the blood? Will you look at the door and say, I have the blood. I have the blood on my door. I've been marked with the blood of the Passover lamb who was slain, Jesus Christ. And will you believe God's view of yourself? This is the biggest problem in your spiritual life. You just won't believe what God says about you. You're taking your temperature, you're looking at how I performed today or yesterday. You think that your problems are the things you see yourself doing. That's not your biggest problem. If you would just view yourself the way God views you and thank Him for it, there'd be hope that your other problems would go away. There's hope that God could grow you. But as long as you keep, quit focusing on the blood... You're shooting yourself in the foot. And God says, you've got to focus on the blood. You've got to focus on what I say about you. And that is ground zero. That is the bedrock that you build everything else on. The objective fact of the blood. And he says, this is a day to remember, Moses tells them. Each year, from generation to generation, you must celebrate it as a special festival to Yahweh, God. This is a law for all time. 
And that's exactly what they did. Year in and year out, they looked back to this deliverance that God brought them in Egypt. They celebrated it and remembered it every year for 1,478 years. That's a long time. Until tonight, Thursday night, the last Thursday before Jesus went to the cross. And let's look at what happens here. This is the stream that Jesus enters into. 1,500 years of Passovers. And what does he do? It says, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. Yeah, they didn't have to wear all their gear anymore. That was something the slaves did when they were in Egypt. Once they're out, they eat this sitting around at a table. And that's how they would, they would sit at the table. They would kind of recline. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He'd been longing to eat it with these guys. And that's a longing that I don't think just went back a year or, or two Along it may have gone all the way back to the time of Moses. As God the Son looked down and he watched each and every Passover lamb be executed and he realized this is all pointing to me. And he's looking around at the faces of the men for whom he would die that very next day. And he says, I tell you, I won't eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And so the Passover is not just a look, you know, what Jesus is doing here. At the Last Supper, he's not just, you know, looking back to something that, that happened. No, he's, he's looking forward. You know, there were, there were really two Passovers that he longed to eat. One was this last one before the cross, and the other one is the next one, which still hasn't happened yet, which is the first Passover he's going to eat after he comes back, after the second coming of Christ and sets up the kingdom of God in its final form. He's looking forward to that one as well. And what's implied here is that there are some festivals, like Passover, and some sacrifices, like the Passover lamb, that are actually going to happen again once Jesus comes back in his kingdom. In fact, you know, you can't really celebrate a Passover without a temple, and that's why I and a lot of others think there's also going to be another functioning temple in the end times because of verses like this right here. It says, after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, there are actually multiple cups of wine at this meal that they would drink from. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Yes, again, another prediction of that, that future Passover. And he took bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Very important verse. And then in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying there's only one lamb who can save you from the angel of death. That Passover lamb from 1,500 years ago, that was just a picture. He says, this is my blood which is poured out for you. Not a blood that you smear on the doorpost, but a blood that's shed on the cross. Jesus says, from now over, Passover isn't about Egypt. It's about me, and you never, ever forget that. This seems kind of arrogant. Here he is entering into this celebration that it's been going on for almost 1,500 years, and he's like, this is about me from now on. 
You know, imagine I show up at your Memorial Day parade and I'm like, oh, excuse me. I know that this is Memorial Day used to be about remembering all the people who died fighting for our country, but from now on, this is Scott Memorial Day. <laughs> you can still have your parade, but just think only of me. Or I show up at your Independence Day party, I'm like, I know that we've been celebrating this for 240 years as the day when we gained independence from Great Britain, but from now on, it's actually about me <laughs> and the freedom that I've given you. I show up at your Cinco de Mayo party. <laughs> this is no longer a day where we just have an excuse to drink tequila. <laughs> this is Cinco de Risley. <laughs> From now on, that's what this is about. And here Jesus is saying, this is about me from now on. I guess you can only do that if it really is about you. If you're God the Son and this thing was all set up in advance to point to the real Lamb of God. As John says in, 1 John, or in John 1.29, as John the Baptist says, look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus says, I'm bringing a new way of relating to God. This is the new covenant. A new way of relating to God. Jesus says, no more are we under the old way. But now, thanks to the cleansing I'm going to provide, the new way is here. And unfortunately, some Christians do miss the foreshadowing and the symbolism here. Like I said, this verse 19 has been hotly debated throughout church history. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Well, the phrase, this is my body, is taken by some Christians not as this represents my body, this is a symbol of my body, but they actually think Jesus was saying, this is literally, actually my body. And that's a view known as transubstantiation. Cha trans, change, substance, substance. You know, it's a change what it is. This is the belief that the whole substance of the wine and bread are turned into Jesus' flesh and blood. That's what this states. That it looks, like, it looks like wine, it looks like bread, but it's really, its essence, the substance here is actually the flesh and blood of Christ. It can only be transformed by a priest, according to church teaching on this. This is not something that just anybody can do. It must be eaten to receive forgiveness. This is how we partake of forgiveness. We actually consume the literal flesh and blood of Christ. And they actually say that this is communion. This is, this is one single sacrifice with the cross and is truly propitiatory, meaning it truly pays for sin. So it's, you can't really separate the cross of Christ and the weekly offering up of the, the body and blood of Christ, these are really two parts of the same thing. And it's, it's representing that week in and week out. Well, I think there's some problems with this view. One problem is I think this is just too literalistic a reading of this passage. This is my body. You know, Jesus says in John 15, he says, I am the vine. Now, we don't read that and wonder, wow, Jesus, is he really a vine? Does he need sunlight to survive? Can he grow roots? No, we, we know he's not a vine. He's, 
he's presenting like a, 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 a picture here. He's trying to use an illustration. He's trying, to, he's trying to teach us something here. Or John 10, he said, Jesus says, I am the door. And we don't wonder, wow, is Jesus, he really a door? He says, he says I'm the door. Does he have two hinges, three? Does he, does he get squeaky? And so we definitely see figures of speech used in Scripture. And I think what Jesus is saying here is this represents my body given for you. And he, he does want us to keep doing this as Christians. He does want us to take communion together. But I think it's what he says here in this verse, in remembrance of me. That's what he goes on to explain, the second half of the verse. I also think if Jesus meant this is literally my body, he would have had to say, this will be my body. Because his body is right there, holding the bread. His blood is inside that body. It it can't both be his body, right? So I think he'd either have to say, this will be my body here soon, or this will be my blood, once I go through what I'm going to go through and I'm not here anymore. But no, he says this is. Or I guess he could say this is also my body if somehow that was his body at the time. But I, I just think the language doesn't really, it, 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 there, there would be so much better ways to say this. That's not what he, he says. This is my body. Um, do this in remembrance of me. It, I just don't, it doesn't fit. Also, we see scripture, even after the cross, continues to call them bread and wine. It does also call them the body and blood of Christ as it's recounting this, but wouldn't it only call them body and blood if that's what it was after the cross? I think this also contradicts the whole notion of salvation by faith alone, the fact that I not only have to place my faith in Christ, but I have to, on an ongoing basis, maintain that salvation through consuming something. Um, yeah, I, I, I think there's, just, there's too many other passages in Scripture that that creates problems for that teach salvation not by works, but by faith, by trusting in Christ alone. There's also not even historical consensus on this subject. You can read big names really early on in church history saying that this is just symbolic. Like Tertullian, it represents his own body. Clement calls them symbols. Eusebius, only bread and wine, and so on and so forth. And finally, this view creates other problems like what do you do with the leftovers? <laughs> I'm serious. If every crumb completely contains, the subst- is the substance of the, f- the, the flesh of Christ. It's not like if you break the bread that it's breaking Christ in half. It explicitly says that every, each part it divides into is the, the body or the blood of Christ. And so what you have is leftovers um, or things that get dropped or spilled and it's, it's blood and body. Um, in fact, this led in the the 13th century, they stopped giving the cup to people in church services. The priest would just drink all the wine. <laughs> Serious. Because they were worried that pe- people were spilling the blood. Um, it was first due to the fear of profanation by spilling the consecrated blood of Christ. In fact, the Council of Constance in the 1400s threatened excommunication to all who distributed the wine to the laity. In the Reformation, then they started giving the cup to people, and everybody was like totally freaked out and shocked. They tell this other story about one guy who had some leftover communion bread, related by Etienne of Bourbon. He tells a story of a farmer who, wanting to be rich, followed the advice of a friend and placed the bread, the host, 
in one of his beehives. So he puts it right in there. The bees, with great reverence, made a miniature church <laughs> containing an altar on which they placed the sacred morsel. All the bees from the neighborhood were attracted and sang beautiful melodies. This rustic farmer then went out expecting to find his hives overflowing with honey. Kind of a superstitious thing here. But to his amazement, almost all of them were empty except the one in which the host had been deposited. The bees attacked him fiercely. <laughs> the local priest went out to the hive and found the miniature church with the altar and carried it back to the village church while the bees, singing songs, flew away. Okay, I, I just don't believe that ever happened. <clears throat> But it just, it leads to other strange problems here. If we take a, um, like, a, like almost a magical view here of bread and wine transforming into flesh and blood of Christ. Especially when he says right here in this verse, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That's what this is for. It's a time to remember. And so how should we view communion? I'll just close with a few points on this and then draw some concluding thoughts. For one, frequency. A lot of Christians argue about how often you're supposed to do it. You know what the scriptures say about how often you're supposed to do it? They say basically nothing about how frequently Christians should do this. All they say is 1 Corinthians, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup. So that's the only guidance we're given in scripture for how often this is supposed to happen. Whenever you do it, here's what you should do. You know, we don't do it at a big meeting like this. Uh, in part because of logistics, but also in part because some people here aren't Christians and we feel like that would be a little bit awkward for them to have to ch choose to either pass this by or take this when they're not even sure what it means and, and shouldn't take it according to what Scripture says it represents. This is a respectful time of gratitude as we remember what Jesus did. We'll usually do this in smaller settings like our home groups. And it's, it's, it needs to be respectful. I've, I've been part of some communions where people were tossing the loaf around like they were playing a game of football or something. Not cool, you know. We need, we need to have some reverence here for what this represents, for what it really is, and not be foolish and irreverent. It's a time of thanking God. It's a time of remembering what Jesus did for us. We need to be reminded of that all the time. We need to remember the blood of Christ and the forgiveness that God offers us through that and how God views us now. This is also a time not just of looking back, but a time of looking forward. Where we think about that feast we're going to have with Jesus someday in the kingdom of God, and we celebrate that. This is almost like a down payment or a guarantee, a pledge that Jesus gave us that I'm going to come back. He's like, you practice, and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to actually have it with you. That'll be a great day. It's also a picture of our unity in Christ. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, you know, just, just as there's one loaf and we all eat from that one loaf, he says, so we are one body in Christ. And so it's a picture of the oneness that we all share, the bond that we have in Jesus Christ. And it can be super cool. I remember the first time that we, my home church celebrated communion you know, I had grown up in church with some pictures of communion. You know, there'd, be, there'd come a point in the service where, you know, the pipe organ would start to play, and it was very, it was definitely always a minor key, kind of dirge-like. 
And you have like a couple minutes where I, I didn't know what I was supposed to think about or do. I, I, I would just try to, to think about how bad I was and to try to review my sins and things like that. And um, I remember we were on this retreat and they were like, we're going to do some communion later on tonight. And so everybody just sat down in a circle and, and somebody had brought some wine and some bread. And I was like, wow, you can, you can do this with real wine. I'd always done it with grape juice. And so he poured everybody a little bit and we passed the bread around and took a piece and somebody gave just a short little meditation on, I think it was this passage right here. And then people just started praying and thanking God. And then at a certain point, people started thanking God for each other and mentioning specific things they were grateful for. People in our group, acts of kindness people had done for them and for other people. Thankful for this person's zeal. Somebody even thanked God for something about me and I, I just couldn't believe it. People, people had tears in their eyes. And we got down and I just thought that was the most incredible relational time of communion I've ever had in my life. That was awesome. Felt so much joy and gratitude and that's how it should be when we celebrate communion. It's not always going to be fireworks and amazing feelings and all that stuff, but what it is is it's a time as a group we just remember why we're here, why we matter, why we have anything in our lives. It's because of Christ because of what he's done for us. Simple, straightforward, just like Jesus here with his guys, sitting around, talking, laughing, having a meal together. That's, that's I think, a great template for a good time of communion. And finally, how should we view it? We should view it as a fulfillment of Passover. As it says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, as we've seen here tonight, the linkage here how Christ fulfills these Old Testament pictures of Passover. So in conclusion, what are we seeing? Well, first of all, we've seen that the original Passover had two aspects. One was that unrepeatable day when they were freed from slavery in Egypt. And then, year by year, there were times of looking back in gratitude to remember that day. You can see the linkage here. The slaying of our Passover lamb has two aspects as well. That one unrepeatable day when we were truly freed from the deepest slavery, the slavery to sin, the slavery to death, and guaranteed that we've passed out of death and into life, guaranteed that when the angel of death shows up, he's going to pass us by and that we'll spend eternal life with God. But we also see times of looking back in gratitude to remember that day. And this is why God set up the Lord's Supper, why he set up communion. Because he knows how forgetful we are. He's only given us two rituals in the new covenant. Baptism, which happens once, and then this one, which happens over and over again. As often as we do it, where we point our eyes back and we look at what Jesus did on that day. And as we look forward in anticipation of that first Passover that we will eat with him. I'm going to close with a passage from Revelation chapter 7. John gets this vision of heaven. He sees people, a, a vast multitude, too great to be counted. People from every tongue and tribe and language and nation, he says. And then an angel comes up to him and he says, all these people you see here around the throne of God, clothed in white. Where did they come from? They've washed 
their robes in the blood of the Lamb and made them white. That's why they're in heaven. That's the only kind of blood that you can wash your clothes in and it gets white. (laughs) That is why they stand in front of God's throne and serve him night and day in his temple. This is why they're here. This is why they can stand before the throne of God Almighty. And he who sits on the throne will give them shelter. Shelter is what God gives. They will never again be hungry or thirsty. They will never be scorched by the heat of the sun. For the lamb, look at that, the lamb on the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of life-giving water and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Luke 22, Passover and the Last Supper. Next week we've got, we're moving right on into the the scenes immediately before, the, before and during the arrest of Jesus, the early parts of his trial, we're going to see how he's abandoned, betrayed, denied. And eventually, the week after that, we'll see him killed. Yes, Lord, thank you for how the cross shows all, all of your brilliance and power and love and wisdom and justice. And thank you for how you gave us these different signposts along the way and then you revealed them in the life and death of Christ. I pray for anyone here that's looking to their own works, that they would instead look to the blood of the Lamb as their only hope to escape death and to live eternally with you. And I pray for anybody here who's a Christian who's continuing to look to their own performance as their basis of their standing with you and there's their sense of identity. And I pray that instead they would look to Christ alone like you tell them to, like you tell us to, God. And that we would, we would take our stand there and build our spiritual lives on the one undeniable fact of the blood of Christ and the cross. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.